the State Archives of North Carolina. Connecting the Docs, a podcast connecting archival materials to fascinating true stories from around the Old North State. Hello, and welcome to Connecting the Docs. I'm your host, Andrea Gabriel. Theme of this first season is Murder, Mystery, and Mayhem, where archival documents provide evidence of a crime, a misstep, or something mystifying. We've been talking about the story of Frankie Silver, an 18-year-old mother who was convicted of killing her husband, Charlie, in the winter of 1831 in the North Carolina mountains. She is sentenced to hang, and the sentence is upheld by the North Carolina Supreme Court. Frankie is able to escape from jail, but is soon recaptured. Her only recourse now is to be pardoned by Governor David L. Swain. Her story is recounted with archivists Debbie Blake and Chris Meekins, examining records here at the State Archives. So people find out about this confession, I think, in the community. And there's another letter to the governor from a man named William Thomas. He was a physician from Brindleton, which is a small community in Burke County. And I'm going to read um, a little bit about that. And this talks about his change of mind a little bit. I did not sign the petition for her pardon, believing her unworthy of executive clemency and seeing the public would not be satisfied with her pardon. But now I will assure you that public opinion is entirely changed, and I am under the impression that nine-tenths of the inhabitants of Burke County would cheerfully sign a petition and would rejoice at her pardon. That public indignation, which at one time was so strong, appears to be satisfied, and now the belief is prevalent that she killed him in a fracas. That part of her confession is not doubted, though the manner in which she disposed of him is not fully believed. The subject who has been praying your clemency I have never seen but once, knew nothing of her nor her family until since she committed the act. But I do believe the public is satisfied that no good would result from the example of her execution. So that wow. this is, uh, you know, I didn't believe her at first, but now things have changed a little bit. I think she there was a fight and or fracas, as he says, and... Uh, And in both of those petitions, you see the petitioner not wishing to sign a general petition until they had a chance to speak directly to Frankie themselves. And under their own examination, their opinion changed. Well, he he says that he's only seen her once. We don't really know that he talked to her. In the previous petition. That's right. That's right. Those men would not sign it until they actually got to speak with her. Right. I think it's also very interesting that he he speaks on behalf of the inhabitants of Burke County and says that now clearly everybody just about nine tenths of the people in Burke County now believe that this woman was justified in what she did. Governor Swain just he's not swayed. Yes. And so we do have a communication from the governor, but it does not vacate the sentence. It does not a, a pardon or clemency. Whereas it has been made known to me that at the last term of Superior Court for the County of Burke, a certain Francis Silver was sentenced to be executed on Friday the 28th for the crime of murder. And whereas it is represented to me that the prisoner has been deluded by false hopes of pardon. Now, therefore, know ye that 
to the end that further space may be allowed her to prepare for the awful change that awaits her. And by virtue of the power vested in me by the Constitution of North Carolina, I do hereby respite the said Francis Silver until the second Friday in July next, of which the sheriff of Burke County and all others concerned are required to take notice and govern themselves accordingly given under my hand as governor and under the great seal of the state at Raleigh, this 18th day of June, 8, A.D., 1833, D.L. Swain. So uh, it's not getting anything from Swain either. He's not going to pardon her. He gives her two read wet respite to prepare herself for the changes that may come. Yeah, uh, like so she's not had a year and a half to prepare herself to prepare for what's herself, coming. But she, she had received news um, from someone who had gone to personally see the governor and was convinced that she was going to receive a pardon. And that was communicated to her. And that is another letter in our governor's papers. And so she was mistakenly informed of the pardon. And in that sense, you can maybe see the large use of, of Governor Swain saying, Okay, you thought you were going to get a pardon, and I'm I'm sorry you're learning you're not. But you've got two weeks. But now you've got two weeks to get your affairs in order. Say goodbye to your daughter. Do the things that you need to do. Get right with your God and you know, those sorts of things. It so. makes me wonder, do you think her parents brought the daughter to her to say goodbye? I, oh, there's I no would hope so. It's, this is just so sad. The child um, would have, have been three that, or four years old by then. Right. Three That's right. Four. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. she would be a, a lot more aware of what was going on than she was when, at the time that the um, that her father died. So there's one last petition, and the, the date on it is June 29, 1833, and it's about two weeks before Frankie's hanging. It's signed by some rather prominent women from Burke and Buncombe County. So I'm going to read part of it here. The husband of the unfortunate creature now before you, we are informed, sir, was one of that cast of mankind who are wholly destitute of any of the feeling that is necessary to make a good husband or parent. The neighborhood people are convinced that his treatment to her was both unbecoming and cruel. Very often, and at the time, too, when female delicacy would most forbid it, he treated her with personal violence. He was said by all the neighborhood to have been a man who never made use of exertions to support either his wife or child, which terminated, as is frequently the case, those duties nature ordered and intended the husband to perform were thrown on her. His own relations admit of his having been a lazy, trifling man. It is also admitted by them that also that she was an industrious woman, but for the want of grace, religion, and refinement, she has committed an act that she herself would have given a world to have been able to call back. We hope that your excellency will extend to the unfortunate female all the mercy you can, even to a pardon, and wipe from the character of the female in this community the stigma of a woman's being hung under the gallows. That's a pretty sweet petition. Wow. 
it certainly does paint a different picture of Charlie than we get from his half-brother uh, many years hence. This does not paint him as a nice young man. A husband who would work and take care of his wife and child. He, and suddenly we're getting reasons why she may have done what she did. Lazy and trifling he was. And those seem to be elements not only known in the community, but that maybe were part of this confession that seems to be permeating around, but we don't have. And then also that phrase, given a world to have been able to call that back, appears in a couple of places. So it sounds like also maybe pulled from her statement of her confession um, that had she had done it and would have given the world to take that blow back once she had buried that axe in his head. A confession that we don't have and we confession know. Confession that we don't have. Even though, you know, uh, some of the men who are writing petitions refer to it. They say well, they've seen the confession. And, it's and, in, mentioned in several documents that she did that, right. um, that she confessed. I mean, her lawyer says she did. And the petitions relate similar details that seem to come out of that confession. So, very interesting. All of that to no avail. A small story appears in the July 30, 1833 edition of the Fayetteville Weekly Observer. Execution. Mrs. Frances Silvers was executed at Morganton on the 12th instant for the murder of her husband. She made a confession of all the circumstances leading to the commission of the awful deed, from which it appears that the whole period of her matrimonial life, a little more than two years, was spent in a succession of quarrels and fights, always, as she says, commenced by her worthless partner. She says he was loading his gun with the avowed purpose of shooting her when she called up the axe and gave him the fatal blow. A few moments afterwards, she would have given, she says, a thousand worlds to have called back the blow. Frankie is hanged on July 12, 1833, a year and a half after the crime. So again, this article in the newspaper that talks about a confession that Frankie supposedly gave, we don't have confession anywhere, not in the papers. It doesn't appear anywhere. I think something else of note that appears in these newspaper articles is the extreme change in the tone of the newspaper articles now. Now they're all coming to her defense and saying that this man was a horrible man and she had reason to do what she did. And when you contrast that with the horrible outrage story, you get quite a significant change. To me, that's quite telling given the bare bones documents that we actually have to support any of this. That's a good point. And Charlie's character has certainly changed from the description oh his half yes. he gave to what his wife says about him, what the community says about him, a ne'er-do-well who did nothing to help raise his family. Even the family that says he was lazy and trifling. And trifling. I mean, that's the first time we've ever heard that. Didn't mean everybody didn't love him at the party, like his that's brother right. said. That's right. Wasn't much of a husband. A provider. A I life mean, mate. It yeah. sounds like, you know, we don't know. That's just the thing. We have no idea. So what really did happen? Writer Sharon McCrum provides a scenario. The cabin is really small. It's a one-room cabin. You've got a small child in there, and the snow is knee-deep outside. So if you have a fight, there's really no place to go. 
you're you're trapped in the cabin. So I'm assuming Charlie did go to the party, drank way too much, staggered home, and was drunk. And Frankie was not happy that she had to build the fires and do all the things that do need doing while he's off having a good time. And if they got into it in in the cabin, she's nagging him and he's got a hangover and he doesn't want to hear it. And at this point, the loud and querulous voices of the parents frighten and disturb the child who then starts howling. And you're trapped in a 12 by 14 foot room with all this noise and a screaming baby and you're already not in in good shape physically and I think at some point he said if you don't shut that kid up I will she kills him I think in the heat of a quarrel suddenly he's dead on the floor in this cabin And she panics. She's 18 years old. She's got a screaming baby there. So she picks up the baby, goes over the river to her mother's house. Her mother's there. Her father's not. That would have been... If her father and older brother had been home, we would never have heard of this case because they were big, strong men who could heave elk carcasses. And if she had gone home and said, I've killed Charlie, Daddy and Jack her older brother, would have made him disappear, and he would never have been found. But two little women who weigh 100 pounds apiece can't lift a body, and if if they tried to drag him out, there's three feet of snow. They would have left tracks a blind man could follow trying to drag that body. So they had no choice but to deal with the body in the cabin. And her mother said, go stall your in-laws and I'll take care of it. But Barbara, who would have been in her late 30s to early 40s, um, is used to cutting up deer and elk. And she she knows how to handle a knife and cut the sinews to get the flesh away from the bone. And she has no particular emotional investment in this. With Frankie, I mean, that would be cutting up your husband. There's there's that whole emotional thing, plus she's so young, plus she's so frightened. I don't think she could have done it. But the mother is protecting her child, which is Frankie. And so for her, it's got to be done to save Frankie. So that is Sharon McCrum's scenario, but there are many, many others that I've, I've run across when I've been researching this um, story. One story goes that her father was there in the cabin with her, and he's egging her on and saying, if you don't kill him, I will. That's one of the things that we hear with nothing to support that, that Charlie is uh, resting by the fire sort of dozing with his daughter in his arms and Frankie decides to hack him and it takes her three blows to get him. We hear that Frankie was a mean and jealous woman although there's nothing to support that. Another piece I read said that she had taken his heart and buried it in, uh, underneath the snow. I don't know how she could have done that but anyway that she cut his heart out. Another story I hear is that on her way to the hangman, her father's in the crowd, and he calls to her, 
die with it in you, Frankie. So we don't know what that means. Die with what in you? What is he talking about? Well, one thing all of this shows up is that speculation does seem to be a human trait that has gone on for hundreds of years. If there is any kind of salacious happening out there, then people are going to speculate all over the place about how it occurred and whether or not it was justified. All right, let's talk about the facts that we do know. A young mountain mother, about 18 years old, is arrested for the death of her husband in December of 1831. Her mother and brother are arrested too, but they are freed within a week. She remains jailed for two and a half months until the Superior Court of Burke County can meet. We know that 150 men were called for her jury. Twelve were selected, listed by name in the court records, so we know who they who they were. Frankie Stewart Silver, her mother Barbara, and her brother Blackston are indicted for the crime. Barbara and Blackston are charged in the indictment for assisting Frankie. A true bill of indictment is issued solely for Frankie, however. The trial, from jury selection to sentencing, takes less than three days. Frankie is sentenced to death by hanging. Her attorney immediately appeals to the North Carolina Supreme Court, not scheduled for session until June of 1832. When the court meets, the ruling of the lower court is upheld. Letters and petitions asking for a pardon come to Governor Monford Stokes. In September of 1832, where Frankie's sentence to be scheduled, the presiding judge doesn't appear, and the next court of date is not until spring of 1833. So she's in um, jail for another, another six, six months. months. Okay. Judge Sewell schedules her execution for June 28th, and that's in 1833. But in May, she escapes. She's found eight days later. Her attorney, Thomas Wilson, and others petition Governor Swain for her release and state that she made a confession to him. In June 1833, after she'd been at large for eight days, Governor Swain grants her a two-week reprieve so that Frankie can prepare herself for death. And finally, July 12, 1833, Frankie is hanged. And if you think that's the end of the story, then you are sadly mistaken, because strangely enough, in 1837, suddenly a document appears in the newspaper. Um, It appears in the Southern Citizen, a newspaper that's published out of Asheboro, North Carolina. And the article's entitled, Conversation of Mrs. Frances Silvers. And there in her own words is Frankie's confession. And we've been talking all along about how nice it would have been to have had access to her confession, what she said she did. It's a really long article, and it describes years of battering by Charlie. And by today's standards, of course, that's it, it's very common. She was continually beaten and knocked down. And, and even when she was pregnant, he wouldn't leave her alone. And she would leave her abuser, but then she would always come back to him. So in this first-person confession, Frankie claims that Charlie hit her with his fist, that he grabbed an axe, but he put it down in favor of a gun. And in the moments in which he's loading the gun, she picks up the axe and strikes him. And he goes down and she strikes him again. 
And she says she's very bothered by the fact that he's making noise. And so she jumps in the bed and pulls the covers over her head. And a little while later, she gets up and rolls him into the fire. She states, I did not cut him in any way at all. She said his body burned through the night. She picked up and scrubbed 14 bloody floorboards. This suddenly is answering all of the questions we had about what she might have done. The fact that it answers all the questions that we had about it and the fact that it comes out in 1837. Three and a half years after she's dead. Really give me pause. You know, I wanted to have the confession, but I really wanted to have the confession at the time that she made it, not three and a half, four years later. Kind of suspicious. Perhaps. It is a whole front page article. It's above the fold. So it's it's all five or six columns of print. It's signed as a witness by her lawyer and an official of the government. And although it obviously has been edited for things like structure and style, I could still see that as her giving a oral testimony, someone else writing it down. Well, she's not cleaning it up for the newspaper. She takes care of everybody in this confession. She really does. Mother and brother are absolved of their involvement. Dad and uncle absolved in their involvement. And she throws in the details that we hear in other petitions that he was beating her and how bad he was. And then the self-defense. It was self-defense. Remember? And then and one petition said, but we don't believe her confession of the manner of disposal of the body. And, and so they don't believe that part that she just hit him a couple of times and rolled him into the fire. It's just a mysterious case. And, you know, we will never figure out. And every day, usually I read something, you know, I'm still researching this story after months and a couple of years. And I always learn something new. And it's never definitive. You just don't have it. As far as I could tell, in all the secondary stuff that I've looked at and people who've written about it, no one seems to have ever located this confession. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's unlikely that Frankie could write, first of all, that she could be so eloquent in the way this confession is done. It's just, I... I just find it very disturbing. It's so pat. It answers all of the questions that people had up to and after her execution. It takes care of all of her loved ones. It does an awful lot of things for somebody who was less than 20 years old at that time. Most everybody in the 1830s was probably illiterate. For her to be able to come up with a document like this, it just boggles the mind. I have no doubt that she made a confession. There are too many other court documents that say she made a confession of some kind. I just have difficulty with this particular confession being brought out at this time period and in this fashion. Well, I'm also very disturbed by if I'm going to make a confession to somebody, I want it to be a confession that I make in my own words. Mm -hmm. And I don't think this document is that. I don't think this is her own words. And if it's been embellished by her attorney, then it's not really her confession um, because her confession would be in her own words. And that just that. But as bothers. witness, it bears his signature and some other right, government right. officials. So, But who even knows if he was even aware of this? Well, some, That's true. We don't know the circumstances around it, and we've never read anything published. else about it. Yeah, right. it's But published. somewhere, somehow, it had to have been written down because all of these people, all these people saw it. Saw it, or I mean, they could have heard it word of mouth, oh, yeah. but they wouldn't have heard it directly from her. Yeah, they mentioned, they, I mean, in the petition, say, That's right. we have seen, so we know it's we have there. seen we know this there's confession. One out there. So we don't know that... 
what her confession said or if the one that published in the paper has anything like the one she supposedly did. That's right. Right. It's it like the entirety of the case from the first newspaper article to this last newspaper article and all the official court records and letters and petitions. There are bits and pieces that tie them all together. And then there's your story. A couple of crucially missing documents here. So 200 years later, we're still talking about Frankie. This awful dark and dismal day Has swept my glory all away My sun goes down, my days have passed And I must leave Judge Daniels had my sinners passed. These prison walls I'll leave at last. Nothing to cheer my drooping head until I'm numb. Another myth that we heard about is that Frankie supposedly wrote a ballad on her way to be hung. It's, I don't know, 12 or 14 stanzas. Uh, we I am very incredulous about her ability to craft a ballad and stanzas. And sing and, it on the way to the news. Right. right, And even write it. I mean, I mean, if the coroner's inquest suddenly showed up, I would be less suspicious of that than I am of the, her crafting a ballad on the so way to the hangman's gallows. We find out that this ballad was written probably between 1860 and 1880s. So the ballad of Frankie Silver first shows up in the 1920s, and it is still sung today. The version that you heard is by Clarence Ashley and Tex Isley. Joe Newberry lives in North Carolina, but he grew up in Missouri in a family of musicians and singers. Joe is an award-winning singer, songwriter, and musician whose instruments are the banjo, guitar, and fiddle. He was a frequent performer on Prairie Hymn Companion. Today, he travels the world performing and teaching music. We spoke about the Ballad of Frankie Silver. We're going to talk a little bit about the Ballad of Frankie Silver. So there is a ballad that was supposedly written by her on the way to the gallows or the way to the hangman. That's not true. Do you know anything about the beginning of that ballad? The thing about ballads is they're shrouded in mystery anyway. We know that it was a dreadful, dark, and dismal day, and it swept all her glories away. The legend of her writing it and singing it on the scaffold, we don't think that's right. But ballads were always a way to comment on the day. Do you know very much about the story of Frankie Silver? Do you know? I've got it uh, from growing up and hearing the tale, um, but the bare bones of it, pardon the pun, uh, the the bare bones of it would be that uh, they could not find her husband. Well, he's off. He's off a hunting. Well, they went to the mountain cabin where they lived and they found evidence of human remains and blood seeping through the floorboards. And it's custom made for a ballad. And and she, of course, said, I didn't do it. It split that community. I think that there are places you can go in the mountains now and have just as hot a discussion about she was guilty. No, she was innocent. No, you. she was guilty. No, she was innocent. Every time I write about Frankie, there's something different. I see a d- different document. Um, I hear something else. So it's a mystery. I mean, still today. 
It's true. And when 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 you have the 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 ballad form singing the ballad people will take that as the the gospel truth. And so I think as the ballad remains then you it, it sort of helps keep the story shrouded in mystery. I mentioned before a cautionary tale. I mean at one point she says, farewell, good people. You all now see what my bad conducts brought on me. She always uh, denied. So so that's coming from somebody who was waggling their finger. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. You want to sing the first verse for us? This dreadful dark and dismal day has swept my glories all away. My sun goes down, my days are past, and I must leave this world at last. Very nice. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. I think that's it. I think we've got enough. Anything else you want to say? Um, when I left um, the workaday world and went out to play music, I decided to sort of accept anything that came across my door, you know, my threshold to make music and to talk about my art, <laughs> including I, I keynoted a conference called From Okra to Opry. It was about Southern foodways. Uh, Southern culture and music. And one of the things I talked about is what makes up a ballad. And when you, t <laughs> it's as a, it's a musical story. It's a, it's a narrative set to music. And so I, I, I said to uh, the audience, see if you can tell where this ballad comes from. And, uh, and I thought about that when I was coming in today. Sit back, you'll hear a tale. Of a fateful trip Started from the seafaring port Aboard one tiny ship Aboard one tiny ship The mate was a mighty sailor man The captain brave and sure The passenger set sail that day on a three-hour tour, a three-hour tour. And often I will <laughs> sing on until I get to the name Gilligan, and then I'll see people go, oh, God. You got me a three-hour tour. Well, the thing is that it, it really is a ballad. It, it tells a story. It does the job. I just sort of set it in sort of that ballad world. I like your version better. <laughs> so There's a, Sharon McCrum wrote a novel about this uh, called The Ballad of Frankie Silver. She introduced me to an actress who played Frankie on the stage, and she has a friend in Minnesota who is writing an oratorio about Frankie Silver. Oh, really? It's to debut in 2020, in the fall of 2020. So it's a story that never dies. It has different art forms. I think it's just a story made for expression in some way. Wow. That's our story for this week. Thanks to our guest, Sharon McCrum and Joe Newberry. Connecting the Docs podcast is created by staff members at the State Archives of North Carolina. Debbie Blake, Ellen Brooks, Andrea Gabriel, Donna Kelly, Randon McRae, and Chris Meekins. For a look at the documents we discussed in this story, visit our History for All the People blog at ncarchives.wordpress.com and click on Connecting the Docs podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.